Welcome back to Murder in the Black. It is your host, Steph. And our theme right now is murder in music. And we really have been on the hunt to find cases that you may or may not have heard of, or maybe some stories that you should have known. So today we will be diving into the story of Yolanda Lala Brown. Yolanda Rose Lala Brown was born on May 20th, 1986 in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Her parents were William and Marie Brown. Lala's mother is of Mexican descent and her father is African-American. She was the youngest of five children. And as I researched her story, her parents often would say in interviews that she had a knack for entertainment, even when she was young. They said from her first steps, she was dancing and she was always singing around the house. It was in her blood. And what's so interesting is that I was listening to a guy who was talking to me about dancing and he was a creative and he was in the arts and he was giving back through helping um, youth be involved in his dance troupe. And he commented that the way that we learn to talk or some of the first things that we learn is through singing. You know, singing the ABC song. We don't just talk them out. We actually sing them. And he said, we learn to walk through dancing. And I pondered upon that statement, especially with us doing Murder in Music here on Murder in the Black. And I said to myself, hmm, that's an interesting way of looking at it. Because I absolutely agree that in our formative years, we learn a lot of the Necessary things to go onward in our education, we learn them through singing because singing is creative and it's a fun way to do things. And so I absolutely agree that some of the first things that we're taught, we learn through singing. But I didn't really know if I agreed with the learning to walk through dancing, but I understood what he was saying. And it was simply that we incorporate a lot of the arts into education and that's why the arts should be included in education because that's how we learn. I definitely got his point. But I want you guys to drop in our poll. Do you agree with that statement? I think it's a good question. But I definitely think that this statement was in line with what William and Maria Brown were saying about their daughter as she grew up. She was always dancing. She was always singing she was most definitely going to be a force to be reckoned with in the music industry. So it was no surprise that when she continued to grow, she wanted to sing professionally. And in her formative years, she went by the stage name of Premier. She would sing at weddings, talent shows, bars, anywhere she could get her foot in the door to hone her chops and her talents. She was definitely going to do it. And I think this just spoke to her drive. She was not intimidated by a crowd and she wasn't shy. She wanted to get out there and showcase her voice, her talent. When she got to high school, she attended Milwaukee High School of Arts and thrived in that community. But in 2002, at the age of 16, she found out that she was pregnant with her first child, Amira Ariel Brown. And she gave birth to her daughter 
And as it just so happens, when you have children young, like Lala had her daughter, you grow up with this child. You grow up and you are just, y'all both growing up at the same time, right? Because you're young, they're young. And she had such a beautiful relationship with her daughter. And y'all, when I tell you her daughter is the splitting image of her, I'm not lying. Like she literally baked herself in for nine months when she was pregnant with her daughter and gave birth to herself. Her daughter is the exact image of her and they are both gorgeous. So of course, we always include pictures and you'll be able to see that after you listen to the episode. But the thing that Yolanda was known for was her drive. As I said, even when she was young at 11 years old and going into high school, she knew she was going to be a singer. And so although she was pregnant and gave birth to her daughter and was dedicated to raising her daughter, she knew that she was going to still become a singer. Her dreams were going to be fulfilled. This is when she decides to change her name from Premier and started going by her nickname of Lala. She continued to perform at weddings and bars. And in 2005, she made a trip to Atlanta because she wanted to fulfill her career. Now, in the music industry around the early 2000s, mainly uh, mid-2000s, Atlanta was popping. And I have to say, Atlanta has always been a mecca of music. You can't discount them. You think about TLC, Babyface, LaFace Records, they were always top tier. Tony Braxton, they're responsible for her career. I mean, they were really honing talent in Atlanta. So when Lala decides to go out at this particular time in the era of music, crunk music was king, okay? It was all about snapping and crunk music. Lil John, Eastside Boys, T.I., you know, Jeezy, all the, the, like the top era of rap, one of the top eras of rap in my, my humble opinion, because I am like a rap connoisseur. I love like all things related to rap and really all things related to music. So when Lala goes down there, she really is like observing like Atlanta culture and, all the connects and networking that she could possibly do from Wisconsin. And she decides, okay, I just need to go because this will increase my chances at becoming the star that I know I can be. And at that time, hot Atlanta was the black Hollywood of the South. You know what I'm saying? It was where you could go to get your career popping and to eventually become the star. So, It was while she was in Atlanta that she met Life Jennings. So let's talk for a moment about Life Jennings. Um, You may know Life Jennings or you may not because his career was somewhat short-lived in the music industry. Many people are still fans of Life Jennings, do not get me wrong. But back in the early 2000s, his career was popping. And his story is interesting. So let's talk about who Life Jennings was and what he did to make Lala's career get the spark that it needed. 
Life Jennings and Lala Brown shared a lot of history in their background and that they both had to conquer obstacles in their past so that they could fulfill their dream of becoming a musical talent within the industry. And in 2002, Life Jennings just finished serving a 10-year sentence in prison, and he was determined to fulfill his musical aspirations. So just two days after being released, he recorded a four-song demo, and a month later, he released his LP and performed at the Apollo. I want to give you guys a mini deep dive into music history because I love music history and I think that we have to talk about it because it brings context to the times that we're talking about. So you can get a robust storytelling here. So Showtime at the Apollo was a syndicated show. But before it was even that and TV execs got their hands onto it, Apollo is a theater in Harlem, and it was known to feature live performances from established performers, but it also featured up-and-coming artists and talents there. And it was like a variety show. So many professional singers would go there to hold concerts and to perform, but also it was a place where you could go and be discovered. It was like, you know, star search, if you will. And so it has so much popularity and so much notoriety that TV execs heard about it and was like, we can capture this and put it on TV for the whole nation to enjoy. And so on Saturday nights or it was it went to Saturday nights, but originally it was on like a Wednesday Wednesday night and you would see people who would come far and wide from the nation to come to New York and perform at its showtime at the Apollo. And they had a kid's hour where kids would perform and then they would have amateur hour. And amateur hour was the highlight of the show because you could come on and see somebody um, perform comedy, poetry, singing, dancing. And the crowd, if you could get through your set, would then vote by their hand claps and noise that they made if you were going to be able to move on and then eventually be judged with the other competitors at the end of the night to see if you would win, right? And they had a beautiful co-host by the name of Kiki Shepard. She was gorgeous. She was like a Vanna White, but she was just drop dead gorgeous. And she would come on and feature the um, competitors at the end of the show And if you couldn't make it through your set because you just got booed too much because that crowd in New York is something else, well, then the Sandman will come and take you away. And let me tell you, I literally remember me and my siblings crowding around the TV on a Saturday night and looking forward to watching Showtime at the Apollo. Because right after Showtime at the Apollo, Mad TV came on. Anybody out there feel me? Okay. So it was a thing. And one of the hosts that really stick out in my mind, they had a number of hosts, but one of the hosts was Steve Harvey. When I initially started watching, it was Steve. And it went on and on to have many other hosts that you guys may have heard of. Anthony Anderson, Christopher Kidd Reed, Monique, Mark Curry, Donna Summers, Sinbad, Martin Lawrence, Whoopi Goldberg. I mean, a lot of people have been a host of that show. And it was 
amazing. Okay, you just had to be there. You could probably go on and find some clips of Showtime at the Apollo. So when Life Jennings goes to Showtime at the Apollo, I mean, it is right pickings, right? He has an LP that he just released. And if he does well, people around the nation are able to see him. And then they're able to go and get that LP, right? Like, it's just, it's the perfect setup. So when he arrives, they love him. No. Initially, after he introduces himself, he steps onto the stage to perform and he's booed. They start to boo him. And they say the toughest crowd is New York. And they start to boo him. But that is until they hear his voice. And they are amazed. They're blown away. And for five times in a row, they feature Life Jennings. And he wins five times in a row his show. So from Saturday to Saturday, he is winning. And like I said, this was like the perfect situation, right? He's known around the nation. He was ripe for the pickings. And Columbia Records knew that they needed to sign him. So he released his first album called Life 268-192 in August of 2004. And that was the start of his career. He had such a beautiful beginning with his career. And when Lala decides to move to Atlanta, guess who's there? Life is there and she meets life and life is just getting, you know, he has his first album underneath his belt. He's doing well for himself. And it's, it's like the perfect meeting, right? And so he hears Lala record a song in the studio and he, he knows that her voice has to be on one of his records. He just knows that it has to be. And he puts her on his second album entitled The Phoenix, and he puts her on this song called S.E.X. And it was a cautionary tale for the youth at the time. Essentially, it just told you that sex really wasn't a thing to do when you're young. Like, it's not something you should be playing with. Many people manipulate it. People who are older can use it against you or may just want you only for the act of sex. And it was a really, really good song. But when people heard Lala's voice featured on that song, I mean, it created a buzz all of its own. And it's like she had all of the special ingredients, all of the special sauce in her voice. And her being featured on that track was the spark that she needed to catapult her career. So Life Jennings actually signed her to a record deal and it was like the perfect meeting. She meets this guy whose career is already thriving and doing well. He's not stingy with his success. He wants to put her on. So he signs her in the meantime, in between time, as he is, you know, um, trying to get his album, The Phoenix, out there and publicize it, he brings her on tour with him. And so many crowds are able to get exposed to La La Brown, her voice, and many people are just excited. They, they want her to drop a record. They want her to capitalize on the buzz that she has received from working with Life Jennings. But for one reason or another, and we're not clear on why that deal fell apart, but they actually fell apart and she stopped 
you know, messing with Life Jennings as far as the business was concerned, her record deal fell apart and she went back to Wisconsin in 2007. When Lila returns back to her hometown, she is a hometown hero. Everybody knows her name. She's popular now since being featured on Life Jennings record. And she really wants to capitalize on that buzz. And she was probably more determined than ever to be a part of the music industry and to drop her first solo album. So she immediately begins to record and she releases three songs that would eventually be featured on her album. I'm feeling it, rescue me, and give them what they want. It is alleged that give them what they want was about her life. But all of these songs were featured before her passing. But a lot of things were actually blooming for Lala at the time. She had the support of her family. She was still raising her beautiful daughter at the time. And she was now recording her very own album. But not only was her recording career starting to fall into place, family life, but also her romantic relationship with someone there in Milwaukee. His name was Jatan Kule Claiborne. Now, his mother described him as a trendsetter, a go-getter, and he was labeled or called Kool-Aid because he had a Kool-Aid smile. And in order to see that smile, you have to go over to our Instagram page and look at his picture. I mean, he had a beautiful smile and it radiated on his face from ear to ear. He was a producer. He wanted to be an entrepreneur and he loved the business. And so did Lala. And they connected through music and also connected with each other romantically. And they started to date and started to work on her music. On one particular day, Jatan and Lala are hanging out at a family member's house, you know, shooting the breeze, eating, having a good time. And that's when Lala and Jatan decided, hey, let's just go back to the studio. It was known that they worked at this particular studio. It was a small studio in Milwaukee. And they wanted to go back and work on her album. The following day, though, no one was able to reach Kool-Aid or Lala. And so the family took matters into their own hands. After calling and receiving no answer, they decided that they needed to go and visit the studio. They saw that no one was answering the door as they began to knock, but they also saw that there was a light on in the studio. So they kind of felt like, that's weird because if no one was here, why would a light be on and we're unable to get in? And so they visit the landlord and they ask if he could open the door and he tells them, hey, listen, I can't open the door. It's not legal for me to do so. So if you don't have a warrant, I can't open this door. I'm sorry this is happening, but I'm just following the protocol. So Lala's family really kind of got fed up with waiting. I think they waited an, an additional day, but outside of that, they said, no, we're not waiting any longer. We haven't heard from her or Kool-Aid. We are going to go and file a missing persons report. They really wanted to get the ball rolling with the police. However, no one really believed them. You know, 
they didn't take it seriously enough. And the family knew that Lala would never leave her daughter. She loved her daughter. She wanted to be there to take care of her daughter. So to go missing in action was not Lala's vibe. She was never going to do that. It was unlike her. So the family just grew impatient with the whole let's follow protocol situation. And they did what any family would do in that situation. They went back to the studio. And instead of asking the landlord to open the door, they opened the door themselves. And that is when they tragically discovered Lala and Kool-Aid on the ground shot to death. Family and investigators discovered Lala and Kool-Aid's body on October 19, 2007. They had been there for a total of three days before their bodies were discovered. Shots were at close range to both Lala and Kool-Aid, and investigators believe that they knew the people who shot them. There were no signs of forced entry, um, and also nothing was stolen from the studio. Lala's family told investigators days leading up to the murder that Lala was receiving a lot of threats to her life, but Lala wasn't intimidated by those threats. She felt like they either didn't matter or her dreams were just more important. The music was more important to record. And so she didn't really take those threats seriously. However, investigators were not able to pinpoint who those threats were being made from throughout their investigation. They also revealed to the public that there was a burglary that took place months prior to the murders happening at Kool-Aid's studio. And the intruder was able to get away with over $10,000 worth of studio equipment. That crime was not solved. That burglary wasn't solved. And they don't know if it's at all related to the murder of Lala and Kool-Aid. On October 25th, they laid Lala Brown to rest. As of November 2023, this crime is still unsolved. The case has been featured on America's Most Wanted in February 2010. And on October 22nd, 2012, TV1 aired an episode about Lala's life on Celebrity Crime Files. I just want to say that this case was particularly hard to get through. I was there for the rise of Lala when she was featured on SEX on Life Jennings' album, Phoenix. I remember hearing her voice and it was so distinctive. And I don't remember when she passed, but I remember watching an episode on TV one, getting the full explanation of how she died and her dreams and how her dream was deferred because someone took her voice. They took her life from her family and they took her dream from this world. And I feel like Lala's story should be told mainly because it's unsolved. And someone out there in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, who was there at the time, heard something, saw something, or even did it. It is time for us to not be silent. We have to speak up for these people like Lala, 
who can no longer speak for themselves. Someone knows something. So I don't truly have a takeaway for this story because it's unsolved. But the one thing that I admire about Yolanda Lala Brown is she was determined to make herself a star. She believed that she was a star and she was going to become a star. And I love the tenacity. I love the resilience that she had because she could have gave up during so many moments of trials during her life when she got pregnant with her daughter. Yes, children's children are blessings, but it is hard to raise them when you are a child yourself. But she was determined to raise her daughter and to also fulfill her dreams. When she went down to Atlanta and linked up with life, she felt like, oh my gosh, okay, I'm about to be a star. I'm about to release my album. But then when their disagreement happened, and for whatever reason, the contract was taken away from her and her and life were no longer on speaking terms. She still didn't quit. She went back to Milwaukee and linked up with a producer there and started to work on her own album because she realized she was good. She got that stamp of approval that she needed in the industry when she worked with life and she was going to be a star. Like no doubt in my mind, she was well on her way into stardom. And just because someone was intimidated by her talent or whatever, they took her away. It's just unbelievable to me. But I featured this story because Yolanda's story and this other story we will be sharing with you next week is a story you should know. Because I believe this story can be solved. And yes, it's been 20 years plus later, 15 years plus later, 15 plus years later, I should say. And yeah, it's still unsolved. But there's somebody out there who can solve it who can give the investigators the tip that they need to solve it. I also want to say that her daughter is into music. She raps and she also sings. She's gorgeous. And she has commented in interviews that her grandparents did a fantastic job raising her. Her aunts and uncles, her mother's siblings also helped. And um, she misses her mother dearly. And she just kind of wants to continue her legacy of music. So that is the story of Yolanda Lala Brown. I hope that you guys have enjoyed this week's episode. It is the second edition in our theme of murder and music. And we actually have one more episode to go. I promise it's going to be something you're not going to want to miss. And you're going to be so happy that you smash that play button next week. And if you're a part of our Perks Club, that means you get early access to that episode. So join now. But let's go ahead and get into what is my favorite segment here on Murder in the Black. And that is our polls and questions. So you guys always show love and give feedback here on Murder in the Black where we host different polls that you can participate in after the episode and also offer questions that you guys can type out responses to. And I love those. Um, But this week, 
or should I say last week, at the end of last week on Sunday, my energy was particularly low just because I had a long week. Nothing happened that was crazy, but just had a long weekend on Sunday. I didn't really feel like going to church. Like I just wanted to like stay in bed, right? Like we all have those days. And I woke up and checked my phone, went through my emails like we all do. And I got an email from a listener that absolutely blessed me. And without divulging too much of her personal story, I have to say, she gave me her personal account of her domestic abuse survivor story. And she expressed how much she felt like I told that story with so much grace and dignity. And I was like, oh my gosh, like that gave me the energy I needed for that day, but for the rest of my week. And so when you guys email us and tell us how much you enjoy something or how much it, you know, fed your soul, you don't know what that means to us here on Murder in the Black. So thank you. Thank you to someone who characterized themselves as a forever listener. I'm forever grateful for grateful to you and sending you love and you know exactly who you are. So let's get into our poll question and our regular question for this week. I asked you guys, do you think you quickly judge personal narratives and true crime? Well, JP32 said, I will say, I'm guilty of quickly judging people in true crime situations. It's like when the husband or wife comes up dead, I automatically think it's the spouse before hearing any of the facts. I think we're all guilty of that in the true crime space. We are all guilty of that. The next um, response that I want to read is from Nubin's 1000. She said, I just want to say, I really enjoyed the perspective shift in this episode and how you told the story from a survivor's view. Fantastic job. Blessings to you, Nubins 1000. I don't know if you're a girl. I said her, so I don't want to mispronounce it. Blessings to you. All right, so our poll question from last week was, which aspect of the Chester Turner case fascinates you the most? 25% of you said the crime and investigation, trial and proceedings, 10% of you said that was the most thing that fascinated you. The time it took to find him, 15% of you agreed with that, and 50% of you said all of it. Well, I actually am not going to agree with the majority this week. really was fascinated at the time it took for them to find Chester Turner and then some of the blunders that happened when they were trying to find the perpetrator and they carry out injustice even in trying to find him right and so I that part fascinated me I was just I I couldn't believe it how long it took them he was committing crimes in the 80s and wasn't caught until 2004 that is a long time But that just goes to show you how we should be grateful that there is no statute of limitations on murder. Doesn't matter if you're 70 years old. If you got caught murdering somebody 20 years ago, you're going to jail. Prison, to be exact. (laughs) So I hope you guys enjoyed um, this segment 
I am going to be including, for those of you who have made it all the way to the end, I will be including a poll this week that I really, really want your feedback with because we're going to be diving into another theme. But instead of choosing that theme for you, I want you guys to help us determine what cases should we be looking at for our next theme going into the holiday season. So do what you guys always do. Participate. Let us know. Give us some feedback. And until next time, friends, this is Murder in the Black.